This episode of Sharing Life Lessons is sponsored by Unidragon. Are you looking for an amazing present for your family, your friends, your relatives, or your coworkers? Well, look no further. Unidragon wooden puzzles make presents with a wow factor. Unidragon is the biggest producer and seller of wooden puzzles in the world today. The colorful animal puzzle designs are of the highest laser cut quality. Every puzzle piece has a unique shape that fits perfectly into each other. Unidragon's customers buy their puzzles again and again. To get a special 10% discount, go to www.unidragon.com and use coupon code DRAGONB2. Welcome to episode 53 of Sharing Life Lessons. This is season 6. We are one spirit, one soul. And together, we are creating a library of stories and life lessons. I am your host, Hamida, and I want to bring you stories. Because stories inspire, stories teach, and stories heal. Karen, welcome to Sharing Life Lessons. It is so wonderful to have met you, and it is so wonderful that you are a guest on the show. And I really appreciate, Hamida, that we're meeting through a, a joint friend, Kate McKeon. Yes, and I want to thank Kate for getting us together. I want you to start us off, please, by telling us something about yourself. Well, I grew up in the 1950s in one of those uh, secluded areas in upstate New York, the Catskill Mountains. And my parents were both adversely affected by the Second World War. My mother, German, when she was in sixth grade, the war came and she ended up, well, having her whole life disrupted, no education, and then based on survival of freezing and starving and Russian prison of war camps, that sort of thing. And my father's life was disrupted by the war when he was in high school, he was American with German parents, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and he ended up enlisting in the Merchant Marines and then spent 13 years at sea. And I wanted to give a little background on my parents because of the way they were affected by the war. They were very much disciplinarians, I must say. I can imagine. But Yes, but on top of it, what they really taught my sister and I, because there's just the two of us, I'm the oldest, my sister's a year younger, was they really taught us self-reliance and perseverance. Mm -hmm. Those were the two big things they taught. And I remember when I was about 10 or so, and I told my parents, hey, I want to be a doctor. And it was very much based on reading and I had no conception of really what a real doctor did, but it sounded like something that I would really enjoy. And I remember my parents saying, that's nice, but you're going to have to pay for it because we're poor. Mm -hmm. And I must say that without scholarships, that wouldn't have been possible. And so for me, the scholarships not only helped me do it, those scholarships really put me in the path of what I actually became as a doctor. In uh, 1987, I had finished my internal medicine residency and I had to do a four-year payback for a scholarship that I had received. Mm -hmm. And believe me, I had no idea that my payback would be in a male medium security prison. That was a bit of a shock for me. 
And I was highly naive, and I was put in the prison for four years to do this payback. Karen, are you allowed to say whereabouts that prison was? Yes, absolutely. I was placed in Northern Nevada Correctional Center, which is a prison on the outskirts of Carson City, Nevada. The reason they placed me there was that no doctor would work in the prisons at that time Mm -hmm. because they were violent, unsavory, And more than anything, they didn't pay doctors hardly anything. The state pay was really poor. And no normal doctor would think this was a good idea or a step up in their career. They couldn't get a doctor. And that's why the federal government stuck me there. And I'd like to leave your listeners to imagine what it was like to be the tall, blonde, new doctor married to an African-American male and being sent to a city where there were no other people that looked like him. Let me put it that way. And then when I walked into the prison, one out of four of my patients were Black. Mm. And I was wondering where they all come from. So what ends up happening is that when I look at the prison, I did four years, I lived through all sorts of drama and trauma in those four years. And then for a variety of reasons, I decided to stay. And mostly it was to protect the inmates against abuses of power. And I think that was part of that German thing from my parents, because Mm. they had experienced it in different ways. I literally stayed three decades in the prison trying to do everything I could to change it. But the story I'd like to share today not only really impacted me, it impacted my husband, Clifton Macklin. Karen, before you get to the story, though, I want to ask you a question. How did you feel safe there? Well, I wasn't safe, but... I mean, even in my second year, I was taken hostage and assaulted and raped. And a SWAT team got me out with a concussion grenade. And they shot the inmate a few feet from me. And the prison really didn't do anything afterwards. I just went back to work. And I think, you know, I explained that sort of self-reliance and perseverance. It never occurred to me to actually stop work or call in sick, <laughs> or anything like that. Or give just, up. Or give up. It, that, it just didn't occur to me. Now, mind you, I was in shock, and I worked through all my own problems with that whole situation in terms of forgiveness and telling the story enough that I don't have any issues with it. But that's not really the story I want to share. Okay. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm totally ready to hear your story, actually. I'll really be looking forward to it. Right. And in fact, if people are interested in those types of stories, <laughs> they are in my memoir, 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor. And listeners, the links to where you can find this book, 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a per- Prison Doctor, will be in my show notes. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that, Karen. Yes. Thank you very much. So here's my little story. And this happened probably in about my third year in the prison. And by then, the inmates had started to realize that I truly cared about them. I wanted to be a good doctor. But on top of it, I really wanted to improve their situation in life because 
it's not only that I wanted to diagnose a problem and heal a medical problem. What I really saw was that they had lots of problems related to what I would call life skills, the addiction issues, angerment issues, stress issues, all sorts of things. And there was no programs like that in the prison in those days. And I really wanted to start those programs and was doing that. And in those days, there was a lot of black and white tension with the racial issues. And so one day, one of the black inmates on the yard worked and really finally got permission to have a speaker for Martin Luther King Day. And the neighboring city, Reno, was going to send them a speaker and they were all excited about this. This was a big deal. The, the yard was really looking forward to this. And then this inmate came in and said, Dr. Gedney, Dr. Gedney, they canceled the speaker. He can't come. And I have no one else to do this. And now the inmates knew I was married to an African-American because okay. in the prison, that grapevine is there. I always say they're like a coffee clutch for Germans. I just start talking about everything and anything. <laughs> <laughs> and so they knew that. So he asked me, hey, Dr. Gedney, can you ask your husband, ask him to come in and give the talk? And you have to understand my husband has an MBA in finance. He was a platoon leader in Vietnam. He grew up in an educated elite family in Chicago in Hyde Park. Okay. And he was oriented differently. He had this sort of mindset, hey, you do a crime, lock them up, throw away the key. That sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I went home and I asked him, hey, Clifton, could you come in and speak? And he was like, why? I'm a finance guy. And I said, Cliff, you're black. This is why you've got to come in. Right. No and fortunately, my husband, uh, he knew it meant something to me. That's why he came in and talked. So he comes into this gym. All the bleachers are filled with black men. And there's only one white face. And that is an inmate sitting in the front, a Frenchman, Mr. Alario. Okay. He gives the speech. The officers even were clapping because my husband was a great speaker. He speaks with one of those leadership authority, making points and also inspiring people. He has that flavor. Got it. And I think he was inspiring the Black inmates to be part of the solution, not look at themselves as victims and complaining all the time. And the inmates came up to him and go, Mr. Macklin, Mr. Macklin, could you end up teaching a black history course in the college program? Because in those days, they still had Pell Grants. There was still a college program. And the black guys are telling him, these college classes are just for white people. We want a black history course, okay. right? And my husband said, well, I'll consider it but it would have to be the ethnic history of the United States. Because what they didn't know was that my husband is also part Cherokee. And his great grandmother had been on the Trail of Tears, which is, if people know the Indian history, that was a horrible thing for the Cherokee. So he ends up teaching this ethnic history class in the prison, in this college program. And Again, the whole class is black, but 
the Frenchman, Mr. Alario, is sitting in the front. And I, I'm never quite sure why Alario really attended. Okay, but this is what happened. Mr. Alario asked my husband after one or two classes, he said, hey, Mr. Macklin, I have a friend on the yard who would really like to just sit in the back of the class and listen. And it would mean a lot to me. And my husband speaks French as well. And, and Clifton, because he doesn't know anything about security and prisons or egos, yeah, that's okay with me if he just sits back there and listens. Mm -hmm. So the next class, he sees a guy in the back who's Jesse. And Jesse is white, shaved head, the muscular arms with the swastikas, the lightning bolts on the neck, uh -huh, right? Uh -huh. And he's sitting in the back of the room for the entire semester, never saying anything, just watching everything. And at the end of the class, everybody leaves and Jesse is last. So he comes up to my husband and he says, Mr. Macklin, if I had a brother or an uncle like you, I wouldn't be sitting in prison with a life sentence and my three-year-old son wouldn't, wouldn't be sitting out there without a father. Mm. He goes, I wish someone like you could mentor my son so he'd never end up in a place like this. Incredible. So that's incredible. But what's more incredible, Jesse wasn't just a white supremacist. He was an Aryan warrior on the yard. He wasn't just an Aryan warrior, white supremacist on the yard. That was something he did to survive. He was actually the shot caller for the Aryan warriors. Now, what that means in a prison, he called the shots for all the Aryan warriors. Okay, so please, please tell us what an Aryan warrior is. Okay, an Aryan warrior is basically a name of a gang, and they're usually in prison systems, and they are white supremacists who band together because they want to, one, protect themselves against black gangs mm -hmm. that pull together, and they are very much oriented to the swastikas because in their unfortunate minds, they think this has to do with the purity of the white race. And that's what an Aryan warrior is in the prison system. And they can be quite violent as well. And because of the way my husband ran the class, and I'm going to just tell you one little incident my husband shared with me where Jesse was actually laughing in the back of the room. And that was one of the black guys in the class was telling my husband, man, Mr. Macklin, we're going to have problems because one of the black guys was not quite right in the head and he beat up a white guy. So there's going to be retaliation. There's going to be retaliation on the yard. And my husband, because he had been in the military and around controlling men all the time, he was like, okay, what do you mean by retaliation? They go, oh, you know, Mr. Macklin, some black guy they're going to pick on and beat the, you know, shit out of him, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my husband said, okay, I have a solution for you. And they're like, what? And he said, and then my husband 
took a piece of paper, ripped up all these strips of paper, held them and said, look, whoever pulls the short straw in this room agrees to be the one to be beat up out there. So none of you else have to worry about. And the guys are going, you're crazy, Mr. <laughs> Macklin. Nobody's going to do that. He said, this is a way to solve the problem. You know there's going to be retaliation. Everybody's worried. Why don't one of you stand up and be a hero and take the beating? <laughs> right. And of course, the white supremacist is just laughing in the back. And nothing really transpired afterwards. You see okay. what I mean? Yeah, right? yeah. But there were things like that that my husband did in the class. And for me, the lesson of this impact, because it wasn't just this class that my husband taught. When he started to really understand and interact with the men, he told me, you know, Karen, so many of these men have problems because they were thrown away by their families their society, the military. And he said, when you're thrown away, he said, you hurt. And when you hurt, you hurt other people. So he started seeing them like I saw them. You see what I mean? Where many of them were damaged and they did bad things because they were damaged and hurt. You and saw my, them for who they were. I saw them for who they were under the defenses and the and in acts they did mm -hmm. but also my husband not only continued teaching that he ended up teaching in there were three prisons in the Carson City area on the outskirts he taught at all three prisons and he ended up also teaching finance accounting and human resources as well very impressive. And is it only to the black men? No, no, no. Because very quickly, very quickly, a lot of the white men, in fact, my husband was a little bit unhappy that many black men did not take the opportunity for certain courses. You see mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Some did, but not as many as he would have liked. But he loved mentoring, period, whether black or white. And because he realized the impact of mentoring, and my husband and I didn't have children, I couldn't have children, basically, he ended up with the Big Brother, Big Sister organization, mentoring children, but he always asked that he wanted to mentor boys who had a parent in prison, because mm. statistically, they are the highest risk. In fact, the risk is six times as much as a, another child for mm. ending up in prison, right? So he wanted to make an impact on them. I have a so, question. Did yeah. he ever mentor Jesse's son? No. See, Jesse's son was three. Yeah. And with the big brother, big sister organization, they don't really let you mentor until a child is seven. He never did mentor Jesse's son. Okay. But that drove him to mentor these other children who really benefited from my husband's uh, mentorship. I really hope someone mentored Jesse. And I really hope someone mentored. I mentored him too. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and the, for me, the life lesson here is something I called proximity. Because the value of proximity is more important than people 
really give weight to. Because if you in any way want to be part of a solution to problems, you can, it is not, you don't get the bang for the buck if you're looking from the outside and then you're looking in. Mm. You have to be close to the problem. And when I say close, it's not only understanding what the other person is going through, if you have the proximity of understanding really their environment, the example is a prison environment. Mm -hmm. If you really come in and you hear those iron gates slam behind you and you hear the sounds and the smells and what it looks like, and you think someone is going to be here for years or decades, mm -hmm. that is a very different feeling. And also when you see them, in different situations, you have a proximity which you can't really describe to someone when you're trying to inspire them to be part of prison reform. And I'm thinking this lesson is not only for someone who is working for prison difficult. reform. Right. What, what would you tell people who are working on reform but non-prison reform? Well, for me, any reform, whether it's racial or social injustice reform, to me, it's everything to do with proximity, which means you have to actually get far closer than you might feel comfortable with mm -hmm. to really understand the people, the environment they live in, and truly listen and watch and understand their needs instead of thinking you know what their needs are and putting it in motion without them being a piece. Because what I found in the prison, which is also typical, is when someone would think of a, a program, they would never ask the inmates, hey, what type of program do you think would help you the most in re-entering society? You see what I mean? Yes. They never ask the inmate, which yes. is, to me made no sense to me at all. Yeah, and I think a classic right now is you have corporations pushing diversity because Absolutely. it's politically correct to push yep. diversity. And what I see is that they have their own mind of what that looks like. <laughs> and, and they may also ask, let's say, just the minority person, okay, what do you think it looks like? But you really have to find out from the group and listen to all parties, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. This is a great life lesson, Karen. What other life lessons did you learn? What other life lessons? Well, one of the life lessons I learned and I'm still trying to learn is that because I was so wired for being self-reliant, I did a lot of things on my own in the prison. And part of it was when I was thrown into the prison, there was no one who showed me the ropes at all. Because when I was put in, there had been a medical director. But when I started, then he was gone. So I'm thrown in and technically I'm the highest physician in the state of Nevada in prison. And I'm new and I have no idea of anything. And it's the HIV epidemic. And one of the lessons I really learned was it took me a while to learn is I was so concentrated on the inmate population 
but I really also to take into account the perspectives and the concerns and the issues with the other side, the custody side, because I looked at as a hurdle instead of a partner Mm. in the beginning, especially because I still think to this day, when I was taken hostage, the custody people wanted me to leave or die. Are you telling me that when you were taken hostage, this was instigated by the custody people? I think that it was not so much instigated, but not stopped. I see. Okay. But the problem is that prisons are, what should I say? They are kept from the public eye, unless the public eye is brought into the prison. Mm -hmm. And the prison is developed and oriented on an old model where you punish, you shame, you isolate, and you are only concerned with that the person doesn't escape from the prison. End of story. Yeah. Now, of course, that has swings, you know, there's some people who want to push more programs and some people who don't believe in it and goes back and forth. But the prisons were never oriented to heal or to return because like 95% of these individuals will go back into society. They were never oriented to realize maybe instead of just being the gatekeeper, the guy with the key, Maybe because these men are going to leave, maybe the prison's job really should also be that they are returned in a way that they are less of a risk to society, not more. Makes so much sense. Yeah. Karen, you were telling us about your life lesson number two. We didn't get to collaboration. So I'm taking you back to that part where you were talking about that life lesson. Yeah. So... In a prison, you need to collaborate with all parties and especially custody and administration of which initially I had a very hard time trusting. Mm. But I also didn't reach out to them like I should have. I had this mindset that, hey, they have been here forever, they should reach out to me and help me. That's how I felt. And I know that later, when I developed my trust again, and I collaborated with custody, a lot of incredible things happened. And my trust really went up. And that was because we had a female prison director, one of nine directors I lived through. And she was someone who actually reached out to me. Mm-hmm. And she also was one of the few directors that truly had a holistic, flexible mindset. And she put into motion programs that I was able to also work on and help develop and improve. One, for example, was something called the True Grit Program, which was structured living for senior citizens in the prison, because a lot of people don't realize that many of these men have very lengthy sentences. Mm -hmm. And you've got 70 and 80 and 90 year old men 
they're demented. They don't even know where they're coming or going. And what do you do with them in a prison? And so we worked together. We also worked together to try to get a hospice unit. So when I started collaborating, a lot of good things happened. Karen, very different and very interesting story. Great life lessons. Karen, thank you for being on the show. It was great talking to you. And I really enjoyed telling you the stories and I'm glad you put me back on course. Like, all right, what is the lesson here? That's my job. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Karen. Appreciate you being here. Okay. Thank you very much, Avita. Listeners, I thoroughly enjoyed this discussion with Dr. Karen Genny, and I hope you did as well. I got to learn something that in my normal course of life, I would never learn. The little I know about what goes on behind bars is from the movies I have seen over the years, which is mostly made up. So this is as close as I can get to understanding anything about our prison system. What really touched me is when the white supremacist, Jesse, comes up to Dr. Gedney's husband, Cliff, and says that if he had a brother or uncle like Cliff, he would not have ended up with a life sentence. So if we really think with our hearts, then many criminals who are in the prison system get to be what they are and where they are because of lack of the right kind of nurturing and guidance. It is not that they want to be there but unfortunately happened to end up there, as Cliff said, because they were thrown away by their families and society, and they did what they did because they were damaged and hurt. So why should we care, you may ask? After all, they are a menace to our society. Well, first of all, let's be grateful that we are not in their situation. And secondly, if we ever encountered someone who has come out of the prison system, And if we continue to think with our hearts, we may be able to help them in a way that would change their lives forever. I want to remind you that after all, we are one spirit, one soul. Finally, the two life lessons we learned today are about one, proximity. The closer we are to the problem, the better we will be able to understand the root cause, making it easier for us to design an appropriate solution. Two, collaboration, without which Karen had to suffer many years of loneliness in her profession. And when she started collaborating, she said wonderful things started to happen. This could be a life lesson we can carry forward into both our personal and professional lives. This brings us to the end of this episode. I will bring you another episode of Sharing Life Lessons next Wednesday. Until then. Be happy, be safe, and be well.